Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 13. Exodus chapter 13. And we're having a mass exodus of children leaving. That's the time when you're turning to Exodus. <laughs> Many of you know that I was a film major when I was in college. And the Holy Grail, or what they call the Holy Trinity of filmmaking, is for you to be the writer, the director, and the actor in one movie. It's called the trifecta. To have all those things go at once in one film. Uh, Citizen Kane came out in 1941. It's considered one of the greatest movies of all time. Orson Welles wrote the movie, produced the movie, directed the movie, and starred in the movie. Played all the roles that you could. Another classic example, a more modern example, is 1989's movie by Spike Lee, Do the Right Thing. Spike Lee wrote, directed, produced, and starred in the film. Now, I don't fault this concept of having to be the writer of the film, the director of the film, the producer of the film, star in the film. I don't have a problem with that per se, but it does illustrate something for us about the fundamental nature of human life and how we view the world. See, here's the problem. At the core of our beings... We want to write our life script. We want to star in the movie. We want to call the shots from the director's chair. We want to yell action. We want to produce it. We want to direct it. We want to write. We want to be in control of our life movie. And here's the problem. When someone tries to be your director of your life, you get defensive. If somebody comes in and tries to steal screen time, you get jealous. If somebody comes in and writes something in the script that takes you off the path that you want to go, you get frustrated because you want to be the director, the writer, the producer, the actor of your life movie, and at the end of the day, you want to win the Academy Award in all categories. And the Oscar goes to me. I'm the director. I'm the producer, I'm the writer, I'm the actor. Now, why do I bring this issue up of wanting to be in charge of your life movie or the center of the drama? You know, we've been in Exodus for a while now. And as we kind of trek through this book, we have to ask the question, who's the main actor in the drama? Now, we've seen a lot of central actors, have we not? Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Israelites, all these Egyptian gods and goddesses with the nine plagues. Yet, who is the one in the book of Exodus, and as a matter of fact, for the entire Bible, who writes it, directs it, produces it, and stars in it, and gets all the attention? Who's the main actor? It's none other than the Lord. 
Yahweh, the great I am. He's the main actor. He's the main director. He's the main producer. So here's the big idea for this morning. Here's the theme of our message today. The sovereign Lord is the primary actor in the drama of your life, not you. Now, most of us wouldn't have a problem with saying that out loud, but I want you to check your hearts this morning. Who is the primary actor, director, writer, producer of your life? Is it you or is it the sovereign Lord? In Exodus, we've seen the Lord unleash nine plagues. The tenth plague being the Passover, where the Lord spared the Israelites because they put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and lintel and they stayed in the home. And as the angel of death passed over and saw the blood, their houses were spared. But the Egyptians did not have that provision. And so there's the midnight cry in the middle of the night. There's a cry of horror because all of the firstborn of the Egyptians had died. And so in a panic, Pharaoh gets up and goes to Moses and says, you guys have got to get out of Egypt. Go. And so we come to that point in Exodus, where it actually becomes the Exodus. The word Exodus means to exit, to depart. This is where Israel actually departs, leaves, exits Egypt. And this is where we pick up in the story. So, Let's look at Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 17, and we're going to go into chapter 14 through verse 14. So we're going to kind of cross two chapters at once here, but they all kind of tie together with one theme. Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Into chapter 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi. Haharoth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And they said, what is this we've done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. 
The Egyptians pursued them, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-Haharoth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. God is the primary actor in this passage of Scripture. He's the primary actor in the drama of your life. What I want us to do this morning are to see three truths which illustrate for us how God is the primary actor in your life drama. He's the primary actor in the life of the Israelites. He's going to get all the glory. What does that mean for us today? So three truths that show us that God is the one that's sovereignly in charge of our lives, not us. Here's truth number one. First of all, God sovereignly leads his people even when it doesn't make much sense. God sovereignly leads his people even when it doesn't make a lot of sense. Now we see this in chapter 13, verses 17 through 22. This is the moment of truth. After over 400 years of being in bondage to these harsh taskmasters, the Israelites have have endured the the ten plagues. They've been protected in Goshen, and now they've plundered the Egyptians, and they are actually ready to leave, to exit. And what would be the straightest, quickest, easiest route out of Egypt to the promised land? I don't have a map up here, but if you look at a map in your Bible, where's the promised land? North. Where's Egypt? South. And there's this little coastal highway that takes you right across the Mediterranean Sea. It was called the Via Maris, the way of the coast. It was where fugitives would escape Egypt. It was the straightest way to get out of Egypt, to go north, to get to the promised land. That would have been the easiest way to get out of the promised land. As a matter of fact, if the Israelites had taken that little coastal route, they would have gotten to the promised land in two weeks. It would have taken them two weeks to get out of Egypt. And verse 18 says they were equipped for battle. Now, just because they were equipped for battle didn't mean they knew how to fight. These were slaves for the past 400 years. They weren't military soldiers. But God's being merciful here. Because God does not lead them out the way you think he should have led them out. If he would have led them out the way that you think he would have should have led them out, they would have come face to face with the Philistines. A mighty, powerful, ruthless army. And God knew that the Israelites were no match for the Philistines. As a matter of fact, you have to go almost 400 years later in Israel's history where King David eventually routes the Philistines out of the promised land. So God does not lead them the way you think he would lead them. Verse 17, the Lord did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines. 
Although that was near. That, that was the easiest way out. That was the route that made sense. Go out through the Philistines. Two weeks later, you're going to be in the promised land. God did not lead them that way. Verse 18, but God led them around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. God led them the opposite direction, into the wilderness by the Red Sea. You see, here's the fundamental issue in the rest of the book of Exodus. Who is leading who? Is Moses leading the people? Are the people leading the people? Or is God leading the people? Who's leading the people? And God does something very gracious. He gives them a visible sign of his presence. A visible sign of his leadership and his guiding. Look at verses 21 through 22. The famous pillar of cloud to lead them by day. Pillar of fire to lead them by night. And it says that the the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud did not depart from the people. I mean, this is an amazing, powerful miraculous, visible, unmistakable, dramatic way for God to say, I'm with you. You want to know if God's with you? Just look up. There's the pillar of of cloud. At night, there's the, the pillar of fire. God was leading them to the promised land in his way. Now, here's the problem we have today. If you're honest with yourself, in your heart of hearts, here's your, we have two problems. Here's problem number one. I don't really want God to lead me. I don't want God to lead me. I want to direct my own life. I want to guide my own life. I want to be in control of where I'm going. 1857, English poet William Ernest Hensley wrote a poem called Invictus. You've probably heard the the famous stanza from the last, or the last stanza. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's what we want. At the end of the day, I'm the master of my fate. At the end of the day, I call the shots. I decide where I'm going to go. I'm in charge. I'm the writer of my movie. I'm the director of my movie. I'm the main actor of my movie. I call the shots. I'm leading the course. I'm the one in charge. Now, we may say we want God to be in charge, but deep down, do we really want him to be in charge? Even when it doesn't make sense, God, you're leading me here. This doesn't make any sense, God. This seems confusing. This seems uncomfortable. I don't want you to lead me. That's problem number one. We really don't want God to lead us. But here's problem number two. If we finally say, okay, God, I want you to lead me, We want God to lead us on his terms. God, you got to do something big. you got to write a billboard in the sky telling me what college I need to go to. I need to see the blinding light. I need to have the sign. Uh, You've got to do something dramatic. I need to know who to marry, what job to take, what house to buy, what career to go to. And God, you've got to do it in a dramatic fashion. Just open up the heavens and put a big billboard up there that says, this is what I'm supposed to do. And then, God, I will follow you if you make it dramatic. You know, you really can't have it both ways. It's actually illogical. God, I don't want you to lead, but if you do lead, I want you to do it my way. That's our problem. Number one, God, I really don't want you to lead, but if you're going to lead, you've got to do it my way. Make it big. Make it dramatic. Make it unmistakable. Do it on my timetable. Now, here's the biblical truth. God does absolutely lead you. God guides you and God directs you. 
And he does it primarily to through, to through, through two ways. Number one, he does it through providence, which we'll talk about. And number two, he does it through scripture. Let's talk about providence. What is providence? God does it through providence. We don't often talk about providence much. What exactly is providence? Providence is God's activity to guide your life sovereignly, where he's behind the scenes doing it. You often don't see what he's doing, but he leads and he guides and he directs you through life circumstances. He is sovereignly superintending your life. You know, sometimes we as Christians get really stressed out because we want to know God's exact will for my life. If I just knew his exact will. Well, God doesn't do the dramatic. What he often does, sometimes he'll do dramatic, but oftentimes it's providentially through life circumstances. God will lead, guide, and direct you. Psalm 37, 23. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Now think about this. When you delight in God's way, when you delight in God's truth, when you're following God, he establishes your steps. He establishes your ways. The word established means to keep firm, to keep secure. God will sovereignly guide you when you're delighting in him. Now what's the opposite of that? Don't expect God to guide you if you're not delighting in his ways. If you're living in disobedience and rebellion, God's not going to guide you the way that you should go because you're in disobedience. Proverbs 16.9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. You know, you're quick to make your own plans, aren't you? I'm going to make my plans. I've got my plans in my heart. Here's what I want to do. Well, here's the truth. You can do what you want to do, but who's going to win out in the end? God's going to establish your steps. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. See, here's the reality. You're never going to thwart God's sovereign plan for your life. If you're a believer, you can disobey. I'm not giving you permission to. This is no permission for you to disobey, but you can royally mess things up, and you can disobey, and you can get off track, but God will bring you back on the path. And here's the truth. If you're walking in disobedience to the Lord, one of the primary ways he gets you back on track is through his fatherly hand of discipline. You guys can give testimony to how God has disciplined you and brought you back on the path. Hebrews 12, 6. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And then Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You want to go your own way? And you're truly a believer? God says, I'll let you go your own way, but guess what? I might discipline you to get you back on the path, and it may be painful. You see, God will sovereignly work in your life to direct your paths. You can't thwart his will. He's going to establish your, your way. He's going to sovereignly accomplish his plan for you. Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, all things work together for good. It doesn't mean that all things feel good. 
God is working all things together for your good, but it may not feel good when you're going through it, but he's doing it for your good. He's working it out. Ephesians 1.11, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. Now, that's not an excuse for you to go out and be disobedient. Because after all, God's got it all worked out. I'll go be disobedient, and I'll just kind of wait for him to sovereignly get me back on the path. That is pagan fatalism. That's not Christianity. Just because God's sovereign doesn't give you an excuse to go do whatever you want. So one way that God lead, guides, and directs you is through providence, through his invisible hand of grace orchestrating your life. But there's another way he does it, and that's through the written word, the Bible. Do you want a pillar of fire to guide you and teach you? I've got one for you. You want a pillar of fire? Anybody want a pillar of fire? Okay, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. There's your pillar of fire. God's word is a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. It clearly leads you. So, when you're in God's word, God's word leads you. Uh, John 8, 31 through 32, Jesus said this. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide, key word there, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So how do you know the truth and how do you get set free? By abiding in his word. What does it mean to abide in the word? To abide in the word means to live there. To remain there, to, to stay there, to, to saturate yourself in God's word. John 17, 17. Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Your word is truth. It's a light to my path. I need to dwell in this word. I need to know this word. I need to, to live in this word. Paul says it this way in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell, live in you. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you've got providence. You've got the Bible. But you've got a third weapon. Who, right now, in your life, is the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who's come to live inside of you. Listen to what Jesus says in John 14, 16 through 17. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. He's going to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. Holy Spirit lives in you. He dwells in you. He's going to guide you to the truth. John 16, 13. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So God gives you three weapons to lead you, and to guide you. He sovereignly has given you this gift of providence where he's working behind the scenes, all things out according to his will. He's working all things out for your good. God is sovereignly leading you. Number two, he's given you the Bible. 
clearly written word of God so there's no mistake as to what you do. You live in the Bible. You dwell in the Bible. You read the Bible as a, as a light to your path. And then number three, he's given you the Holy Spirit to live in you, to guide you, and to lead you. So you have three powerful weapons that God has given you in his grace. Providence, the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. Rest in those truths that God is leading you. God is guiding you. God is directing you. And so what do you need to do? Trust in his providence. Read his word and rely upon the Holy Spirit. So that's truth number one. God leads his people even when it doesn't make sense. God says to Israel, I'm not leading you out the easiest way. I'm taking you out the hard way. Here's truth number two. God sovereignly rules over our enemies so that he will receive all the glory. God sovereignly rules over our enemies so that he alone receives all the glory. Now, here's where the military strategy doesn't make sense. Not only does the Lord say, hey, I'm not leading you guys up the easiest route, but I'm going to take you south, and I'm going to take you in the wilderness, and by the way, I'm going to back you up right against the Red Sea so you're sitting ducks. You have no place to go, Israel. You're going to be out in the desert. You're going to be out in the wilderness. You're going to have the Red Sea behind you. And 600 chariots and more are going to come pummeling you from the front. They're not on a mountain. They're not on a hill. Geographically, they are in the wilderness with their backs to the Red Sea. Verse 14, chapter, I mean, verse 4 of chapter 14. So we're down in chapter 14, verse 4. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. What's been God's plan all along in Exodus? They will know that I'm the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. Do you realize God has a burning passion for his glory? That God is a jealous God? Now, we look at jealousy as a human trait. We say, well, we shouldn't be jealous. If you're God... You have the sovereign right to be jealous for your name and for your fame and for your glory. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give or my glory I will not share to any other, nor my praise to carved idols. What's the problem for us? Not only do we want to share God's glory, but if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we actually want to steal God's glory for ourselves. We not only resent God leading and guiding us, God, I don't want you to lead me. And if you do lead me, you got to do it on my terms. But at the end of the day, God, I want all the glory. I want people to look at me. I want to be the center of attention. I want the people to know that I am all that, not you, God. We would never say this out loud, would we? But we puff ourselves up with pride. And when things are going really well, we want people to look at us, and we never look to the Lord we're always drawing attention to ourselves. I don't want to be led. I want to be the attention. I want to be the one that receives the glory. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory 
for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God is taking them on this excursion that doesn't make sense so that he alone gets the glory. Pharaoh, you're not going to get glory in this story. The Egyptians, you're not going to get glory in this story. Moses, you're not going to get glory in the story. Israelites, you're not going to get glory in the story. If anybody's going to get glory, it's the Lord. Because what's God's most concerned about? I want everyone to know I am the Lord. There's no mistake. You will know me in judgment or you will know me in salvation. But either way, you will know that I am the Lord. Paul says this about Pharaoh in Romans 9, 17. Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Is that your ultimate desire? That the name of God would be proclaimed in all the earth. Or is your desire, I want my name to be proclaimed in all the earth. I want to make a name for myself. I want everybody to be talking about me. I want the fame. I want the glory. I want the accolades. I want everybody to look at me. So here's truth number one. The Lord sovereignly leads his people even when it doesn't make sense. Truth number two, the Lord sovereignly will rule over our enemies so that he alone gets the glory. But here's number three. And third truth. God sovereignly fights our battles as we stand securely in his salvation. God sovereignly fights our battles as we stand securely in his salvation. We see this in verses 5 through 14. Okay, Pharaoh wakes up, gets a wake-up call. Now, wait a minute, what have we done? We lost a million-plus of our workforce. All these slaves we just let go. That's not good. So he gets hot, and he gets angry, and he pursues them. And he, he, he amasses 600 chariots and more. And he rushes towards them in hot pursuit. Now think about the military strategy. Who's the decisive advantage in this scenario? you got a bunch of Israelites that have their backs up to the Red Sea that are sitting ducks with really not a lot of weapons and not a lot of training. They're just kind of sitting there. And you got the most powerful man in the world with his chariots raging at them. Who, who's got the advantage? I vote for Pharaoh. Anybody want to vote for Pharaoh and his army? They ultimately have the ultimate advantage. And it's obvious that the Egyptians are barreling down towards the Israelites. They're in hot pursuit. They're going to capture the Israelites. They're going to drag them back to slavery. And so what is the natural response of the Israelites when they see the oncoming army? Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly, and the people cried out to the Lord. They feared. Now, before we get angry at the Israelites for fearing, it was a little irrational, wasn't it? What have they just seen? If you're an Israelite, what have you just seen? We've seen plague after plague after plague. We've been spared in Goshen, and we've just seen the Passover God's been faithful to us in the past. He's been powerful to us in the past. God has been wonderful to him in the past. Why isn't he going to come through right now? Why can't God come through in this moment right now? If he's been faithful in the past, why doesn't he show up now? Listen to how the psalmist describes this nation of Israel at the Red Sea. Psalm 106.7, very interesting commentary that the psalmist says. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. They rebelled. Why? Because they did not remember God's wondrous works. Short-term memory. Those plagues, the Passover, that's ancient history. You know, it was like, like two days ago. God showed up in power. Why can't he do it now? And they begin to turn on their leader. They begin to criticize. They, 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 they look at Moses and they begin to criticize him. And they really say to Moses, they only see two options. They're so clouded in fear, they only see two options. What's option number one? We're going to die here. You brought us out here to die. Or option number two, we're going back into slavery. Those are the only two options they saw. We're going to die out here or we're going to go back into slavery. That's all they saw. Sometimes when you're clouded in fear and you're clouded in doubt, you can't see the true options that are in front of you. It's always negative. It's always what's going to be the worst case scenario. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 6-7, So we're always of good courage. We know that while we are at home at the body, we're always, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. How was Israel walking? By faith or by sight? Sight. I see 600 chariots coming at me. I am scared to death. And then Moses has a fine moment of leadership here. In verses 13 and 14, Moses tells the people to do four things. I love this about Moses. Number one, fear not. Don't panic, Israel. Don't be afraid. Don't panic. Fear not. Number two, stand firm. Stand your ground. Don't surrender. Take your stand. It reminds me of what Paul says in Ephesians 6.13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand in the day and having done everything to stand. Stand strong in the armor of God. So number one, fear not. Don't fear, Israel. Number two, stand. Third, what does he say? See the salvation of the Lord. Open your eyes, Israel. God's about to work in a powerful way. Have your eyes open to God's salvation coming in this moment because you're never going to see these Egyptians ever again. Then fourth, what does he say? You only have to be silent. Now, that word silent in the Hebrew language doesn't mean they just sit there and they're like not saying anything. It means they're not to make any moves. They're not to take action. They're to rest. Now, if you're an Israelite and Moses tells you these things, what are you thinking? Moses, you're an idiot. Let's be honest. What you're telling us to do is counterintuitive. What would be your immediate reaction when you saw the Israelites? Don't panic. I'm panicking. Stand your ground. I'm running for the hills or I'm running into the ocean. See what the Lord's going to do. I can't see him. I'm going to close my eyes. They're coming. Be silent. I'm yelling my, my heart out because we're about to be taken over. Everything that Moses tells them to do goes against human nature. Are they going to fully trust in God's power to act or are they going to remain in unbelief? Psalm 46.10 Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. God will fight our battle for us.
God will fight. You know, this is a powerful metaphor for salvation when you think about it. What does God tell us to do in our salvation? Work really hard to earn your salvation. Do all these religious things so that by the end of the day, you can stack up enough good deeds so God will let you into heaven. Do a lot of spiritual activity so that you're acceptable before God. Is that what God says is the way to salvation? What does God say? No, it's by grace. It's by resting in the finished work of Christ. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 4, 4 through 5. Now to the one who works... His wages are counted as a gift, not as a, or not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. It's not working, it's believing. Romans 9, 16, it does not, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay. Let's go back to this text and see who the main actor is. God led them. God went before them. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God says, I'm going to get the glory alone. God says, I'm going to be known. God saves. God works. God fights. So who's the main actor? Is it the Israelites or is it God? Who's the main actor in your life? Is it you Or is it God? And at the end of the day, do you really want to be in charge? Do you really want to be in charge of your life? Because let me just ask you a few questions. Can you honestly lead yourself? Can you save yourself? Can you work things out for good, sovereignly, in your life yourself? Can you really even fight your own battles yourself? No, you can't. And that's the point. That's the point. The sovereign Lord is the primary actor in the drama of your life, not you. God will sovereignly lead you. He's going to lead you. He's going to get the glory, and he's going to fight your battles. Rest in these promises. Find security in Jesus. Don't be the actor, the director, the writer, the producer of your life. Surrender it to God alone who gets the glory. And you'll find life will be a whole lot more pleasant if God's in control as opposed to you being in control. So will we all surrender to the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Forgive us for the times in our lives where we take control where we want to be in charge, where we basically would say with our mouths, we want you to be in charge, Lord, but in our hearts and in our actions, we push you to the side. Lord, we're weak. We can't guide ourselves. We can't fight our battles. We can't lead ourselves. We need that pillar of fire and pillar of smoke, Lord, and we know that you've given us the word and spirit. So help us to saturate ourselves in the word of God and rely upon the Holy Spirit of God so that we can trust you to lead us. Even when it doesn't make sense. Lord, oftentimes you don't make sense at all when you're leading us. But we trust you. We follow you. Lord, let that be the heartbeat this week as we leave this place, that we would follow you even when it doesn't make sense. 
and we would rest in the finished work of Christ on our behalf and what you accomplished for us, Jesus, by fighting the ultimate battle over death and sin and the devil, by dying on the cross and rising again. Help us to be the people that submit to you as opposed to the ones who are in charge. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen.